Welcome back to part three of my retrospective on the cinema of 2009. I thought it best to break up the summer a little bit, since June and July are always the big months for blockbuster movies with big budgets, and all the various romps and comedies we love for years after. That said, one of the reasons I try to be so thorough is because we get to look at so many films with early performances by beloved actors. Case in point, Away We Go is a comedy-drama written by Dave Eggers and Vanda Levita, directed by Sam Mendes and starring John Krasinski, Maya Rudolph, featuring Jeff Daniels, Jim Gaffigan, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Allison Janney, Catherine O'Hara, Melanie Linsky, and Paul Schneider from Parks and Recreation. The story follows Bert and Verona, a couple living in Denver and expecting their first child, looking for a place to settle down as they both work from home. They explore Boulder, Colorado, where Bert's parents say they are moving to Belgium and have already got a couple signed on to rent their apartment. Phoenix and Tucson, Arizona, where respectively Verona's old boss is in a bitter marriage and Verona's sister is involved with an unpleasant man. Furthermore, they explore Madison, Wisconsin, where a friend of Bert's is living a very entitled life, and she and her husband both condescend to Bert and Verona. Then they go to Montreal, Quebec, where they visit old college friends and feel like this is a good match. And finally, Miami, Florida, to tend to Bert's brother and their niece, after the brother suffers from a divorce, where Verona opens up about what her life was like before her parents died in a car crash. In all, these people put in a lot of mileage, and somehow the people they know there are referendums on who they will become in those towns. I also find it remarkable that these folks travel internationally, and money is no object for them, so they can just go live anywhere. In 2009, this kind of life is a bizarre fairy tale as much as it is today. This reminds me of the home renovation shows where the husband is a doll tailor and the wife caters bark mitzvahs and their budget for a home is 3.1 million. Would it surprise you that the film did not make back its budget? And yet, this film has an above average score with critics. I can honestly say that the cast alone makes this worth watching, but the story just seems awfully dry and unpleasantly cynical. It essentially takes a reversal of the 90s kids movie North with Elijah Wood and Bruce Willis and makes the same efforts. While I liked the fantastic elements of North, Away We Go has so little to do with the world, yet tries to be grounded, based on a very fantastical premise. I think that it would have worked better if they had scaled it down, maybe setting it in a more limited area like New England. You could have them travel between different places, like a couple of cities in New Jersey, New York City, Philadelphia, Boston, and so on. These are places you can drive to in a day or so, and it would make sense that a couple could live in that region and choose where to live working from home. The writers, Eggers and Vita, are more known for founding the magazine The Believer, along with each writing a number of books, as well as being a Generation X couple, so the film is as much a self-insert story for them as anything else. This would have been them a few years earlier, and even the name Vendelavita is an easy comparison to the character's name 
Verona de Tassant. I cannot fault them for writing about what they know, but feel like had there been a bit more reflection on the scale of the project in times when people were struggling just to have a home, they would have written the final story to be more relatable to the general audience. One film that I did not have to go into such length about is our next subject, The Hangover, a film directed and co-written by Todd Phillips with Dan Goldberg. The writers based the story on an incident wherein one of the executive producer's friends disappeared after racking up a large bill at a strip club. This movie was filmed in just over two weeks at a cost of $35 million and was the comedy smash of the summer, earning $470 million and spawning two sequels over the next four years. A lot of the story's comedy relies on drug use, with one of the trio having drugged them with rohypnol that he thought was ecstasy. It's the same kind of comedy as Dude, Where's My Car? and the Farscape episode Scratch and Sniff. In the former, two stoners have to figure out what all happened while they were baked, finding out that they were party to a story involving a battle between aliens over a device capable of destroying the world. And in the latter, our heroes tell the story in retrospect of how they were drugged while at a resort and end up taking on a kingpin that saps young women of their vital energy to create a narcotic. So two of our heroes, John and Dargo, in the Farscape episode, have to overcome their differences to rescue their friends from a trafficker of humans and drugs in a story that is told in a very silly way. So what I am saying is that I would rather watch either of those than this. A lot of the humor in The Hangover is shock, some slapstick, and not as much my kind of humor. I do not care for comedies in which people suffer permanent injuries, so this one is just not for me. By coincidence, 2009 was also the year that A&E Home Video released the entire series of Farscape on DVD as one massive box set, complete with commentary on several episodes, bonus features, and so on. I got it for myself as soon as it came out, and I regret nothing. For the families, we got Will Ferrell in Land of the Lost, based loosely on the 70s cult sci-fi show of the same name. The original show was created by Sid and Marty Croft, some very talented brothers who created a number of successful kids' shows for the then-new concept of Saturday morning kids' entertainment, including H.R. Puffin Stuff, about a boy's adventures with his magic flute and a friendly dragon on a magic island who are regularly under attack by a witch who wants the flute. And, of course, they created Lidsville, about a town of living, talking hats who live with a wicked magician as the show's villain. There was also a 90s revival of Land of the Lost, but it is largely forgotten, as it was a bit of a departure from the previous incarnation, which was more about survival, and the 90s version was playing more on a serial mystery appeal. A later character of a woman trapped there for decades was originally planned to be an adult Holly, tying the two series together, which would have been great for people who had enjoyed the first iteration of the show. Had this version been made just 10 years later, it would have actually been a hit compared to shows like Lost. The movie version of Land of the Lost basically takes a lot of the show's concepts and abandons the core ideas of a family surviving in a strange world filled with dinosaurs and lizard people. It takes Rick, Holly, and Will and turns them into just three adult people. 
It tries to cultivate a nostalgic atmosphere by playing some 70s top 40s, but as it makes the main characters just two bachelors competing for the attention of Holly, the film feels less and less like the source material. Where it does live up to the original is the mysteries around the Sleestack Lizard People and their leader, Enoch. And I personally love the voice work done by John Boylan as Enoch and Leonard Nimoy as the Zarn. Watching it now, seeing then-today show anchor Matt Lauer on, and knowing what we do about his history of sexual harassment of co-workers, I cannot help but agree with Rick Marshall when he says, Matt Lauer can suck it. I think that the problem is as noted, I expected a family film since it is based on a children's show, but the filmmakers intended it for adults, using profanity, sex, drug references, and alcohol use to flavor the humor. The studio even promoted the film with a marathon of the original series on the Sci-Fi Channel, with promotional content for the movie during the ad breaks. Now, from a creative standpoint, you're creating a supposed parody of the original, and you want people to remember the show, but also want them to forget about it. I can practically see the parents taking the kids to the movie with the funny ape man and the scary dinosaurs with top tier comedians cracking wise and finding the whole thing a messy, disappointing farce. The film remains poorly received by critics apart from Dana Stevens of Slate.com and Roger Ebert, although Stevens' praise seems more based on nostalgia than the actual contents of the film. The Croft brothers apologized for the film eight years later at Comic-Con and denied any real involvement with the project. And I think therein lies the problem. The writers, Henshi and McNicholas, were writing their own story about what they thought was fun to go see. Henshi regularly worked with Will Ferrell on other projects like The Other Guys and also the website Funny or Die. Remember that being a thing? The actress who played Holly, Anna Friel, came through it unscathed, even praised, and had a decent career on stage and screen since then. On that, I have to agree with the critics that she and the voice actors are the best part of the whole thing. The film itself went on to be nominated for awards and even won. However, that award was the Golden Raspberry for Worst Prequel, Remake, Ripoff, or Sequel. Personally, I think the only reason I have ever tolerated this movie is because of the few cast members I like, the excellent special effects, and the great soundtrack. The show got a renewed interest prior to its being made by a reference on Family Guy, and from the nostalgia fest that was the VH1 series I Love the 70s, wherein a bunch of C-list celebrities would be brought in, shown some highlight footage from a subject, and then asked what they thought of it in an interview. Then it would all be edited together. The celebs would usually be up-and-comers with good agents or people whose stars had faded a bit since that big project they were on a few years before. And we all watched it, lapping it up like a kitten to milk. It was cheap for the network to make, and it filled up slots, got the advertising dollars, and brought in viewership. By contrast, the movie version of Land of the Lost cost $100 million, and between box office and DVD sales, made only $81 million, posing a net loss for Universal. Onward and upward, some of us enjoyed My Life in Ruins, a.k.a. Driving Aphrodite. 
This was a starring vehicle for Nia Vardalis, better known for My Big Fat Greek Wedding, although I personally enjoyed her and Tony Collette in the drag queen comedy Connie and Carla. My Life in Ruins is a decent comedy with other talent like Richard Dreyfuss, Rachel Dratch, and Harlan Williams. It centers on a classics teacher named Georgia who loses her job due to budget cuts and has to work as a tour guide. I will not spoil this one for you, as it is a film I personally own and enjoy, but it follows the premise of a road trip movie where Georgia has a lot to deal with. She grows as all kinds of crazy mishaps occur, and she faces adversity with Richard Dreyfus as a tour group member, Irv, who acts as a sage or a sort of mentor for her character. It is an upbeat comedy with a satisfying conclusion, and not surprising, it did well. Verdalis tweaked the script a bit after she was brought on board, and the film was co-produced by Tom Hanks. Vardalis herself said that she had always wanted to film in Greece, and you can tell that she's enjoying herself while filming and is passionate about the project. Although the film made back a little more than its budget, it is by no means a hit, probably because critics hated the movie. However, if you want some light entertainment wrapped around a visual travelogue, this is one to see. One fun fact for this movie is that it was the first American movie allowed to film at the Acropolis. Moving on, the next film is a slapstick comedy horror splatter film called Doghouse. It's a movie about a group of men trapped in a town full of women infected with a virus that turns them into violent cannibals. The plot is similar to Shaun of the Dead or The World's End, where the group is gradually whittled down. It was a total flop, and critics hated it. I would dare say that it would probably appeal to the Evil Dead crowd who do not mind comedy horror, but with some Edgar Wright flair, and borrowing a bit from movies with similar premises, but for most people, I would say give this one a pass. Another flop is the Nickelodeon movie's family comedy, Imagine That! In this one, Eddie Murphy plays a workaholic named Evan, whose daughter can tell the future with her comfort blanket and imaginary friends, and he begins exploiting this power for his job. Naturally, this leads to a conflict when he only seems to value her for the things she can do for him, and not just for being his daughter. It's a cute enough story, but not one with a lot of kid appeal. While it might be amusing for people who enjoyed Liar Liar and similar films, where a parent learns to take time for their kids through magical intervention, I don't see this one having a lot of appeal for the children. It comes as no surprise, then, that it did not even make back half its budget. Imagine That was co-written by Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson, both of whom penned Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, while Solomon went on to write Men in Black and Now You See Me, and Matheson wrote the two Bill and Ted sequels. I think it sounds like a cute enough film to justify watching with the family, but just if it is a mixed crowd, like children, adults, and geriatrics. Later that summer saw the release of a popular independent cult film simply titled Moon. This film stars Sam Rockwell, with Kevin Spacey providing the voice of the robot Gertie, and is about a man mining helium-3 on the moon. Interestingly, this was a plot point in Iron Sky, which came out three years later. The miner, Sam Bell, starts hallucinating other people after spending years in isolation. 
The basic idea is similar to that of the Tom Cruise movie Oblivion from a few years later, wherein you have a man alone, harvesting resources with only an artificial intelligence for company. It turns out that he is not himself, and is being exploited without hope or compassion. The cast is small, and at a budget of $5 million, it made back almost double that. It has been praised by audiences, critics, and even scientists. I found it tiresome having come in at the middle whenever I tried to watch it, but I suppose it's one of those movies that you have to sit back and enjoy from the beginning. It won several awards and is praised as one of the best sci-fi films in recent years. Next up on this train is The Taking of Pelham 123, a remake of a 1974 film of the same name, based on a novel by John Goatee. There was also a 1998 TV movie remake, this version at a budget of $100 million and starring Denzel Washington and John Travolta banked $150 million at the box office. It also features John Turturro, Luis Guzman, and two actors from HBO's The Sopranos, James Gandolfini and Michael Rispoli. It centers around a group of terrorists taking over a subway train full of hostages. I will not ruin it from there, but the movie was a huge hit and is much beloved by fans. It features high adrenaline, twists and turns, and was part of a revival for Washington and Travolta. I will say that I like the unassuming ending of the film as a perfect denouement for the audience. The movie got middling to negative reviews with critics comparing it to the original, but for the majority of the audience that had not seen the original, it seemed to go off well. Some dissenting opinions praised this version for the exciting pace and the good direction and editing, comparing it to another Denzel Washington movie, Deja Vu, which was also directed by Tony Scott. Is it not a little odd that we had at least two big-budget movies with well-loved stars in it, both based on projects from the early 70s? Between this and Land of the Lost, I feel like the producers were likely kids or teens in the early 70s and felt like reviving something from their childhoods. Looking at the ages of the producers and director, I think that holds firm. Although it made back more than its budget, it lost out to The Hangover and Up. The problem is really more that the leads and supporting cast were so many big names, which immediately makes it hard to turn a profit on the project. Would you do me the honor of letting me tell you about the next film? It's the all-star romantic comedy, The Proposal. Released by Touchstone Pictures, this movie comes to us from the director of 27 Dresses and Step Up, and spent three years in development. The DVD commentary track reveals a lot of great behind-the-scenes fun facts about the making of the movie. I need to say at this point that I have a weird relationship with Sandra Bullock's filmography. I like most of the movies she's in, but not for her being in them. I do not hate her acting. It's just... it does not do anything for me as a viewer. Apparently, she is great at coming to work, knowing her lines, and having the right energy for the scene. Really a pleasure to work with for cast and crew. Anyway, filming took two months between studio sets and a number of locations, mostly being coastal Massachusetts. The premise is a little bit like the Andy McDowell and Gerard Depardieu romantic comedy Green Card, wherein the leads are trying to pretend to be engaged so that one can stay in the country. However, this one plays things up for laughs a lot more. 
You have a paunchy stripper, a dog being snatched by a hawk, and Sandra Bullock performing an a cappella version of Little John's Get Low around a ceremonial fire opposite the late, great Betty White. A lot of the story is a liar-revealed plot, but the government caseworker is not fooled for a minute. I will not spoil too much, but the story is fun and has aged rather well. Needless to say, the film was praised by critics and audiences and brought in over $317 million against a budget of $40 million. If you have not yet seen this film, I really do recommend it, as it is a fun story and the director got some great performances out of all the cast members. Up next is Whatever Works, a Woody Allen comedy with an all-star cast helmed by Larry David and Evan Rachel Wood. A typical for Woody Allen's self-insert character named Boris, an older man, ends up marrying a 21-year-old woman. Her mother arrives and keeps trying to split them up, eventually working, and then the 21-year-old's father turns up and realizes he's gay. Boris meets a woman interested in him after he jumps out a window and lands on her. The film was a relative hit outside of the film festival circuit, but critics gave it middling reviews, noting that the story felt 40 years old and stale. I'd say give this one a miss. Up next, Harold Ramis gave us Year One, a prehistoric comedy starring Jack Black and Michael Cera. This one had so much press and failed so badly, making back just above its budget. It features an all-star cast, but was panned by critics. Mostly, the film plays around with some of the stories from the Book of Genesis, and mostly has a cult following. Next, we have the second film in the Michael Bay Transformers series, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. This film features many of the previous film's cast returning, when Sam Witwicky begins seeing strange symbols flash in his brain, and the Decepticons are coming for him. This film features a rather uncomfortable scene in which Alice, a Decepticon disguised to look like a young woman, pins Sam to his bed in what amounts to a rape scene. Weirdly enough, that is not what people hate about it. No, they hate the thin story, the poorly played humor, and worst of all, the racist stereotypes of two particular robots. This is not helped by the runtime being about two and a half hours. It made back four times its budget, but was not adored by fans or critics and aged horribly. Generally speaking, I can firmly say that most films are made worse by rape scenes, especially when they seem to be making light of it. As a survivor of abuse, I wish that the scene with Alice and Sam had been scrapped. This film holds no warm place in most people's hearts. The studio made its money, so let's move on. Next, we have something a little more mature and substantive. Michelle Pfeiffer and Rupert Friend in Cherie. This one is a period piece set at the turn of the 20th century in Paris, based on two books about the title character by French author Colette. It tells the story of a wealthy middle-aged courtesan named Lee, as she has a love affair with a young man nicknamed Cherry, who is the son of an older courtesan. Things between them are strained by the age gap, and the story has a satisfying conclusion, but while some might see this as uncomfortable, akin to The Graduate or to Shotokan Manga, 
it does have more maturity and resolve to it that works better than more unsettling stories like Lolita or the aforementioned Whatever Works. Up next, we have the gritty war drama The Hurt Locker, the story of an explosive ordnance disposal team in the middle of the occupation of Iraq. After touring the film festival scene starting in Venice, it saw a wider release and garnered several award nominations and was the first Best Picture awarded to a movie with a female director, namely Catherine Bigelow. This film has loads of talent. Anthony Mackie, Jeremy Renner, Evangeline Lilly, Rafe Fiennes, and Guy Pearce. It easily made back its budget and is a popular addition to many people's DVD collections. Mackie was fresh off his role of late rapper Tupac Shakur in Notorious from earlier in the year, and Lily was fresh off of the cult TV series Lost. And of course, Renner and Mackie would go on to eventually be Avengers, and Lily would play Hope Van Dyne, aka the Wasp, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The film is most known for the cinematography of Barry Aykroyd, with Bigelow utilizing 16mm film cameras to capture as much as possible from multiple angles and to give the film a very real feel as if from the perspective of a spectator in the moment, or the proverbial fly on the wall. Editors Chris Innes and Bob Murawski worked with roughly 200 hours of footage to create this film over the course of eight months. And I will note that despite multiple cameras and a reportage style, Bigelow was careful to not violate what is called the 180-degree rule. This is a heuristic that says you can change filming perspectives, but should never go past 180 degrees from any other point. So if you imagine a person walking down the road, you might film from behind them and in front of them, but then only from the left or right, not both, because it can disorient your audience to see the characters seeming to walk from left to right and then right to left. Likewise, you might film them on the right, in front, and on the left, but then not behind, unless you had unique geography, like keeping a forest on one side of them, to help the audience keep track of which way the figure is going. Another reason to avoid doing this when filming the scene simultaneously from multiple angles is to avoid having the cameras having another camera in frame, which ruins the illusion of the scene's world. Anyway... The Hurt Locker is obviously not for everyone, but it is still well-liked by a lot of people, and a well-made film with a lot of hard work behind it. And the last movie for June is My Sister's Keeper, based on a story of the same name by Jodie Picoult. Pardon me if I'm mispronouncing that, I never learned how to pronounce her last name. It has a fantastic cast, including Cameron Diaz, Jason Patrick, Alec Baldwin, and Joan Cusack. I can also give you a mind-blowing fun fact. One of the producers was none other than the late Stephen First, beloved actor who played Flounder in Animal House, and Veer Cotto on the sci-fi TV series Babylon 5. Another of the producers was Scott Colton, who in a former life was a professional wrestler and commentator Colt Cabana in the All Elite Wrestling League. These are not the people you imagine producing a Jodie Picoult story. It's the story of two sisters, Kate, played by Abigail Breslin, who has leukemia, and Anna, played by Sofia Vasilieva, who was born to basically donate whatever the doctors could allow to keep Anna alive. 
The mother, Sarah, played by Diaz, does not feel bad in the slightest about essentially cannibalizing the younger daughter to keep the older daughter alive. When Kate's kidney fails, Anna seeks medical emancipation. This causes Sarah to feel no end of hatred for Anna. And I will not spoil the resolution, but it is typical for Bicolt's writing in how satisfying it is. In classic literature, scholars would consider it against the natural order for a child to be born solely for another to essentially feed on to survive. In the natural order, the older daughter would grow sick and die, while the younger one lived on and was loved as her own being. But in this story, the mother, in her grief, has roboticized herself to the feelings of her own flesh and blood. I think that if I were to recommend any films from this retrospective thus far, My Sister's Keeper is among the top of that list. Before we move on to July, I will give an honorable mention to Surveillance, directed by Jennifer Lynch with an amazing cast. It's a dark thriller that leaves the audience confounded and disturbed. That's it for part three, folks. I'll see you back here for part four.